1: Hey everybody, this is Bob. Before the episode gets started today, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. We recorded this episode a couple weeks ago with a guest in studio and it wasn't until we went into the editing room that we found out that our guest host on this episode, uh, his audio is just, it was terrible. It was almost unusable. And we found that two of our three mics were actually like that and we were able to go back and re-record my vocals on this episode, but we weren't able to get our guest back in studio, nor would we ask him to do that. We still think that the content of this episode is fantastic but please bear with us as you listen to our guest host today because his vocals are going to be a little bit off from the quality that
2: you're used to hearing and now let's get to the show
1: robots radio presents in
2: 1989 director spike lee gave the world an explosive vision of a day in the life experienced by millions of americans in 2019 brown
1: foreman gives us two whiskeys that redefine what it means to be a barrel maker The
2: movie is Do the Right Thing. The whiskeys are Cooper's Craft. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1989 classic, Do the Right Thing. Brad, we're finally out of the year 1939.
2: How's it feel? Man, I was pleasantly surprised by the year 1939. It left a lot of good taste in my mouth. Well, fresh off the heels of
1: talking about the racial insensitivity of Gone with the Wind, we flash forward 50 years to 1989, and we're going to be taking a look at Spike Lee's masterpiece today, Do the Right Thing. We've brought a special guest in studio with us. For the first time joining us on the Film and Whiskey podcast, we are joined by our friend James Talbert. James is One of my best friends, he is a pastor in Akron, Ohio, at Citizens Akron. James, it's so good to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with the movie Do the Right Thing? Because I am pretty sure this has to be up near the top of your favorite films.
0: Well, Do the Right Thing is my number one film ever. I love Do the Right Thing. Uh, Do the Right Thing is a movie that I first watched with my dad on his bed in his one-room apartment. And he had an old school TV. In order to change the TV, there was no remote. There was just like this clicker on the TV that you change channels with. And he had a (laughs) hookup to this VCR. And he had three movies. Three movies were Coming to America, Shaft, and Do the Right Thing. So that day, Do the Right Thing was up. And my dad, the ex-Black Panther, sat down and talked to us about Spike Lee, Do the Right Thing, and White People that day. I had an education that day.
1: So I first met James in high school. James and I go way, way back. And one of the very first things we bonded over in high school was the movie Do the Right Thing. I'm pretty sure in order it was uh, the Jackson's miniseries, the Temptations miniseries, and Do the Right Thing. Yeah, and South Park. (laughs) And South Park. So James and I have been having conversations about this movie for, I mean, 15 years now. This movie is celebrating its 30th anniversary, and at the time of its release, it was one of the most controversial films ever released, and it remains so to this day. But now we have to ask the question, Brad, had you ever seen this film before? Bob, I had never even
2: heard of this movie before. You had never even heard of Do the Right Thing before. Okay. <laughs> I Yeah, I'm not going to lie, man. I had never heard of this movie until you put it on the list. And even beyond that, like, I didn't even realize that it was, like, a controversial movie until you were like, hey, man, like, we should probably, like, listen to some other podcasts and do a little bit more research than normal because, you know, this is kind of a big one. (laughs) Yeah, uh, It's a
1: it's a definitely a sensitive movie to be talking about, especially in the current climate that we're in in America. So with all that said, I want to turn the floor over to you now because you know what that means. It's time for our favorite segment on the podcast. Brad explains. So, Brad, fill us in on the plot of Do the Right Thing.
2: So Do the Right Thing is one of the reasons it's a brilliant movie is because, and I, I say this in a really good way, it's a very meandering type of film. It really just moves through a day in the life of one specific street corner in Brooklyn, New York. You know, we get to meet all the different characters. You get to meet Radio Rahim, who just likes to wander around and blare his music, and he kind of uses it as a shell to protect himself. And, you know, you have Sal, he's a local pizza shop owner who's, you know, been in the town for a hundred years, or so it feels like. And, you know, you have his kids who have their own problems, and you you see mother's sister, and she's kind of the neighborhood watchdog that, you know, keeps an eye on everybody and yells at them. And this movie just kind of moves throughout the day, and you see them interacting with each other, and you see the frustrations that they have with one another. There's a new Korean shop owner who is, you know, selling fruits and vegetables at the, on the corner of their block, and everybody's still a little nervous about them. And there, there's all sorts of things happening. That you can kind of see the racial tensions that underlie, you know, Sal, this white Italian owner, being in a neighborhood, you know, full of African-Americans. And you you see all these issues, but they're kind of underlying. You you get this sense of family, that this block is a family of people that live their lives around each other, even with, you know, the stuff they don't like about each other and the stuff they love about each other. They're They're a community. Well, this all kind of comes to a head when Sal, who obviously has some anger issues, you know, there's this character named Bugging Out that, that he really wants to see some people of color up on the wall of fame that Sal has, you know, and it's all Italian-Americans, you know, and Radio Rahim is in Sal's shop and he's playing his music way too loud and, you know, Sal is cussing him out and telling him to turn the music off. And and it all kind of comes to a head near the end of the movie when radio raheem and Bugging out come in and they're you know blasting their music and they're yelling at sal and sal pulls a baseball at bat out and he he just busts the heck out of radio raheem's radio his boombox and this culminates into radio raheem and sal getting into a fight which culminates in the police coming and you know as you know in the film and whiskey podcast big spoiler alerts the police come and they choke Radio Raheem until he is dead. You know, they, they murder this kid in cold blood. And from that point on, the the, the scene just devolves into a riot. And the Sal's Pizza Shop gets burnt down. And the firemen are hosing down the locals of the block. And, and it just devolves into this scene of chaos. You know, and, and at the very end of the movie, you kind of get this scene between Mookie one of the main characters who delivers pizza for Sal, and Sal, and and they kind of, they don't come to peace, but they come to the point where they just say, hey, like, we're moving on. We're moving on from each other. And that's that's kind of the basics of Do the Right Thing. It's, it's a beautiful film in so many different ways for so many of the things it does. But I don't know, James, Bob, do you think that's a decent summation?
0: Yeah, I think that was a really good summary of the movie. I think the way it starts... It just is starting the day, even with people waking up like their alarms going off, them listening to the radio. You have Samuel L. Jackson as the radio host, and he's starting the day off in just this really bold, beautiful way.
1: One of the things that I really noticed on this watch through of the movie was how for probably two thirds of the movie, three fourths of the movie, it really comes across like a comedy. Like it's a really funny movie. It's this sort of, like you said, Brad, it's characters wandering in and out of each other's lives and doing it in such a way that that like each scene kind of builds to a punchline. You really are laughing at these characters a lot. And then everything kind of turns on a dime and it really quickly devolves into this heavy, heavy drama. But what I loved about it was that none of that felt forced. None of it felt out of place. And it really stuck with this whole overarching theme of A day in the life of a place. Everything that happened in this movie really felt like it could feasibly happen in the real world.
2: Yeah, honestly, this movie is just so beautiful because you can feel the sense of history going on between these people, even though you see them in just one normal day. You know, when Radio Raheem gets into something of a fight, you know, with some Hispanic guys down the block you can tell that it's not just this one time that they've had this argument this is something that they've probably gone back and forth on and honestly it looks like radio raheem's you know new boombox is brand new and like so you get this sense of history on this block but you get it all mashed up into one day it's a beautiful beautiful way to portray this city block well and i think a
1: lot of that goes back to the fact that spike lee in in addition to being an actor in the movie, he directed the film and he wrote the film. This is one of the best pieces of ensemble writing I've ever seen on screen because none of these characters really gets much more screen time than anybody else. Everyone's kind of just a supporting character, but even in the midst of just being supporting characters, I think Spike Lee fleshes each of these characters out so much. You find a lot out through dialogue, but you find a lot out through what you're talking about, Brad, like what's implied, what's in the subtext. You really do get a sense of where... The sort of building tensions are coming from, how long they've been simmering. You know, when it comes to Sal and his two sons versus the neighborhood, you understand that that tension has been increasing for years and years, especially in his son, Pino, who has gotten to the point where he truly hates all the black people in the neighborhood. So you're right. In just a short amount of time, Spike Lee definitely conveys the history behind these beefs.
0: Yeah, and I would I would go on to even say that like this is just a great characteristic of Spike Lee's art in general. Like when you look at Spike Lee as a writer or a director, like every writer or director has their thing. Like Quentin Tarantino doesn't do things in chronological order. So scenes are always all over the place and they always come together to this climactic point. Spike Lee always in all of his movies, like there's never, even in Malcolm X, where Malcolm X is clearly supposed to be the main character. Like you learn about The other characters who are in that movie as well. Malcolm X really isn't the main character. I feel like in Spike Lee's art, whether it's Malcolm X or she's got a habit or he's got game, I feel like Spike Lee's main character is a central point that he's trying to display. Hmm. And I feel like in Do the Right Thing, like the central point that he's trying to display really is the main character. Mookie is just the Carrier of that main point. Well,
1: maybe it's a good time for us to get into talking about the performances in the movie then, because there's so many good ones to choose from. So, Brad, why don't you take the lead and pick a character that you'd like to talk about?
2: I would like to talk about Sweet Dick Willie. Man.
1: (laughs) First of all, Sweet Dick Willie is the best named character in the whole movie. Oh, hands down. Sweet Dick Willie might be my favorite character in this entire film. I'm not going to lie. He has all the good lines.
2: Yeah, he really does. And this character, I i don't know. There's just something about his ubiquitous nature of I am on this block and I run this block and Mike Tyson could come down here and he could not get me off this block. There's something about that bravado that's just so endearing that I just, I loved every bit of his character and the way he acted and the way he just doesn't give a rip about what even his friends think you know, I'm you know i gonna go spend my money with the Koreans across the street because they're selling me something, and that's fine I'm okay with that, uh, there's just something about his character that I really loved
1: Yeah, and I thought that all of the smaller bit part characters like Sweet Dick Willie were just perfectly cast I mean, if you go way down the cast list In terms of who has the most lines and down near the bottom is Mr. Senior Love Daddy, who is the local uh, radio DJ. And at the time this movie is made, no one really knows Samuel L. Jackson. But now, you know, we see Samuel L. We're like, he's in this bit part. And it just goes to show how well cast this movie is, but also how these great actors are taking smaller roles to kind of contribute to the overall message of what this movie is trying to get across.
2: I loved I was listening to an interview of Spike Lee talking about Do the Right Thing, and he doesn't even say anything about Samuel L. Jackson. He just says, oh, yeah, me and Sam go way back to this and that. And like that was just the best.
1: So Spike Lee, the director and the writer of this film, also gives himself what we could call the lead character, which is Mookie. Mookie is basically teetering on the edge of unemployment. He works as a pizza delivery guy, but he's a 30 year old man. He has a son with his girlfriend, Tina, played by Rosie Perez, who he never really goes to see. One of the things about Mookie that I really like that Spike Lee does is through Mookie, you get a sense of what Spike is trying to do with the script. Which is to say that even though Mookie is presented as the protagonist, he's not a perfect person. He's not a person you necessarily are supposed to root for. Mookie makes really bad choices throughout this movie. If you want to call him anything, Mookie really is a deadbeat dad. and. I think a lot of people, when they first saw this movie and they saw that Spike Lee chose to play Mookie, what they saw is that by playing Mookie, Spike Lee was endorsing everything Mookie did. And I don't think that's the case. And I actually really love that he took that role for himself because it just adds another layer of complexity to what he's trying to do. But Brad, what did
2: you think about Spike Lee? Honestly, out of all the performances in this movie, I was definitely least impressed by Spike Lee. Like yeah, you can just tell he's not an actor. And there's a there's a small part of me that is like, well, maybe the indifference that Mookie shows throughout the movie is supposed to be just kind of reminiscent of real life and that's how a real life person would act. But there's something about it that I it didn't endear me to him in any way throughout the movie. And maybe maybe it does for some people. I just out of all the performances in the movie, he's just always so deadpan and uncaring about the things that go on around him. You know, it it almost feels weird when he finally shows emotion and throws a trash can through the window, because even as he walks over and, you know, he takes the lid off and throws it on the ground and picks up the trash can and walks over. You don't ever see any anger or rage or frustration in his face or anything. It's just, he just kind of mechanically picks up this trash can and, and throws it in a window. I There was something about his performance that just felt, you know, mechanical to me.
0: You see, I would think his performance as Mookie is the performance of a young African-American male in 1989. Like, it's the, it's the most hip-hop thing ever. Like, he's cool as the other side of the pillow. Like, he's walking around in his Jackie Robinson jersey and his fresh Jordans and his fresh haircut. And he's, like, doing the secret handshake with everyone. And he's, like, this well-respected person in the neighborhood. Like, everyone's cool with Mookie. He's Mm. in different spaces, but everyone's cool with him. And I think what I love about Mookie is, like, the way Spike portrays Mookie is he is authentically him. Like, he's Mookie when he's with Rosie Perez And she's getting on him about not being a good dad. It's like the steadiness and constantness that could be seen as something that's like boring or unappealing. But like for me, when I look at it, I'm like, man, like Mookie is the man. Hmm. Like Mookie is the guy. He's that dude in the neighborhood that like the guys are cool with and they want to be like the women want. And Mookie is like he's the representative and like torchbearer of like bed there in Brooklyn.
1: Well, there is one woman who has a complicated relationship with Spike Lee's character, and that's Rosie Perez as his girlfriend. This was her first movie. She had been a choreographer for the Fly Girls on the show In Living Color, and Spike Lee met her at a party in L.A., She was dancing on top of a speaker at this party, and he told her to get down so he didn't get sued. And he said that she cussed him out so bad, he said, do you want to be in my movie? Which is actually pretty accurate to their relationship on screen. For being her first movie, Rosie Perez, I really, really loved her energy in this movie. I do think that some of the scenes between Tina and Mookie go on a little bit long. You can kind of tell they were improv and stuff. And Spike just let the camera roll for a while. But I thought Rosie Perez was electric. Brad, did you like her
2: performance? I did. I was just kind of curious that she didn't it didn't feel like she had much depth. And and I don't mean that her performance didn't. It just felt like the script could have done more with her. Like they literally just used her as a sex object. And as somebody that screamed at Mookie. And and I just kind of feel like you could have done more with her because I think she gave a great performance with what they asked her to do. I just would have been curious to see her as more than just Mookie's girlfriend.
1: I think that's a great point. So moving aside from Mookie and Tina, I feel like there's a few different people groups that we should talk about. And next, why don't we go to the people inside of Sal's Famous, and that's Sal and his two sons, Pino and Vito. Pino and Vito are basically portrayed as polar opposites. Pino is angry and racist and cynical about the future of the pizzeria in this neighborhood. Vito is really good friends with Mookie. He likes the clientele. He likes the people in the neighborhood. He'll openly admit that he wants to be more like a black person, whereas Pino gets accused by Mookie of, hey, I can tell you wish you were black deep down. And he reacts violently towards that. And the dynamic of those three people interacting with the community around them, I think really is the heart of the movie. Everybody's wandering in and out of Sal's establishment. So why don't we kind of work from the bottom up here? Brad, why don't we talk about the characters of Pino and Vito? And I want to start with Vito, who is, you know, the more benevolent of the two I really love the performance, Brad. What did you think of Vito?
2: Oh, I I loved Vito. I I think he offers kind of a soft perspective on race relations, where it's okay to admire people who are not the same skin color as you, you know, and and we can talk about how you know there is a sense of white appropriation of black culture and how that can be a dangerous thing. But I think for Vito, when you're living in the culture and around those people and you just show a genuine curiosity of, hey, like, I I like the music you're listening to, I think there can be a healthy sense of, yeah, this is a part of our culture. And as long as you're kind of invited into that culture, I think that there can be a healthy sense of relations between people of different skin colors. And I think Vito kind of represents that.
1: Yeah, and Vito, in a lot of ways, to me, is one of the most tragic characters in the movie because of what happens at the end of the film. The whole movie, I feel like Vito has had Mookie on one shoulder and Pino on the other shoulder telling him two separate things. And the end of the film where the riot breaks out and the pizzeria is burned down, you get this shot of Pino who basically feels vindicated by what's happened and says essentially, like, I told you this would happen. And I'm always left wondering what happens to Vito after this. Does he, like, go over to his brother's way of thinking? Mm. Because for so long he was convinced, I know that's not going to happen to us. And at the end of the movie, it does. Mm. So uh, that's one of the kind of master strokes, I think, that Spike Lee is making with this screenplay, is that he knows which characters to leave resolved and which ones to leave unresolved. And one of the unresolved ones is Vito's brother, Pino, played by John Terturo, who he's the most hateful person in the movie. I don't know that there's anyone else that would even compare, but Pino says it in such a way his
2: hatred is so
1: intentionally hurtful to a whole group of people. I don't know, Brad, what are your thoughts?
2: Honestly, he kind of reminds me of the one juror in 12 Angry Men who just goes on and on about, well, we know what kind of people these people are and... You know, ironically, he's talking about young Italian Americans and and 12 Angry Men. But it just kind of reminds me of that relentless racism that goes so much deeper into the core of who he is. And you just kind of go, man, like, like, what is what is going on here? And and if you had to choose a villain in the movie, I mean, obviously, the police are kind of this cold, unfeeling villain that you don't get much of a feel for. But out of all the characters you spend a legitimate amount of time with, you know, Pino really is the villain of this movie. He is the one who kind of drives things. And it's a struggle to be around him in this movie because you can just feel the dripping racism from him. And I think it's brilliant that Spike Lee has him in the movie because you you need to see that this movie can't just be about a bunch of people who get along and suddenly explode. He really shows the underlying tensions that have been there the whole time.
1: Well, and on the other side of the equation is this character bugging out who is an African-American. He lives in the neighborhood. And as you said, Brad, he gets upset. But he's looking for a reason to get upset. He's upset with Sal from the beginning. And when Sal won't put cheese on his pizza, that puts him over the edge. And then when he sees that there aren't any black people on the Wall of Fame, Buggin' Out responds by trying to organize this boycott. And I think what you said was so perceptive, Brad, that Buggin' Out really isn't the villain of this movie, even though he helps incite something later on. Because the way the movie treats Buggin' Out is as a character that you can laugh at in a lot of ways. Uh, Mookie, Mookie, you want to get your friend out of here? What, well, are you going to kick me out now? Or are you, you going to kick me out,
2: No, I'm not kicking you out. You're kicking yourself out. What?
1: Look, we got some brothers up on the wall, you know. Let's go. Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, you know, you know Michael Jordan. Tomorrow. Come, Come on, Mookie, get, get him out, all right? I'm trying to get him out. I hate life. I know you paid for it. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right. He's kicking me out. He'll beat me in the head and go kick me out, Right. Come on, let's yeah, go. okay, you bet. Yeah, all right. Let's yeah, I, look, I paid for my Look,
0: boycott signs. go. Boycott Yo, boycott signs. I got Yo, your boycott swing. Boycott signs. <laughs> Yo, pick. What you laughing at? Yo, I paid for my slice, man.
1: Buggin' Out is so over the top that even the people in the community, when he's going around saying, will you join my boycott of Sal's, they're like laughing in his face, like, man, I grew up on that pizza. No one takes Buggin' Out seriously, but from the very beginning of the movie, they take Pino seriously. They portray his simmering anger and hatred and resentment as something that is dangerous, that is going to come to a head. Even his dad, Sal, asks him at one point, why do you have so much anger in you? Even his dad doesn't recognize it, and it's come to consume him. So, yeah, I definitely think you're right. He's the
2: villain. And the the cop-out answer he gives just makes me so angry. Like, oh, my friends make fun of me. Like, obviously, the, the writers of the script did it well because that just... But the th- the scary thing is, I guarantee you that that excuse has been given over and over and over in situations like that. And I just... Oh, it just it's just frustrating.
0: Yeah. And I think in the inside of Sal's, what Vino and Pito principally are representing is like two sides of like Sal is what you get with Sal is you get the Sal who's really, really nice to Mookie's sister. You get the Sal who like believes that like people have grown up eating his food and he's really proud of that. And he's proud to be in the neighborhood. And this neighborhood has supported the lifestyle that they live outside of the neighborhood. So he's looking at his son and he's like, what are you talking about these people? Mm-hmm. These people support the lifestyle that you're so trying to be a part of. Then at the same time, Radio Rahim comes in, turn that stuff down, get yeah. that stuff out of here. At the very same time, when bugging Out ask if there can be some black folks up on the wall, he's like, you get your own pizzeria, you put some black folks up on the wall, and here it's only Italian-Americans. And you get the really uh, the really ethnocentric uh, segregated Sal at the same like they both exist at the same time. And I think the portrayal of his two sons really represent like the two sides of Sal that you see in his interactions with people.
1: Well, and that's the wonderful thing about the character of Sal is especially from a writing standpoint, because Danny Aiello, who plays Sal, was nominated for an Oscar. I think he's brilliant in this movie. He's definitely the most well-rounded character. I think they give Sal probably more screen time than anybody else. Maybe Mookie, but Sal's definitely up there. But the character of Sal exists to prove that nobody in this movie gets off scot-free. He might be the most sympathetic character in the movie. You really do feel for him. Even after everything is said and done, Sal has lost his business, and yet... Sal definitely plays a role in it, and he is as guilty, if not more guilty, than anybody else in that situation. And when you see Sal finally lose his cool in a way that he can't take back or make right again, I think that's Spike Lee adding that extra layer that forces us to ask the hard questions in this movie, because we can't fall back on someone who is 100% good all the time. He just doesn't give us an out like that. Brad, what did
2: you think about Danny Aiello's performance? Oh, my gosh, Bob. His performance, I think, is the best of the movie. And I think that one of the most magnificent things that Spike Lee does in this movie is that I really think he puts the viewpoint of the audience through the lens of Sal, because I think as an audience member... You know, in a lot of different ways, you watch this movie and you see him struggling with the realities of this racially charged tension that you have in the neighborhood. And you see him trying to balance that as a white person and you see him him just fail at it. And yet at the end, when he and Mookie are are talking to each other and, you know, he he's spitting at Mookie, you know, the, the window you broke, you know, would cost more than $250 that you're asking me for. And, you know, he starts throwing the money at him, but they, they kind of come to this weird sense of respect for each other at the end. I, I don't know. There's something about his performance that was just beautiful for me. And I I was amazed that he was able to pull all of that off. Because in a lot of ways, unfortunately, I think that a lot of the other characters in this movie are kind of given one perspective to show. When you look at Sweet Dick Willie, you just see one side of him. And when you look at the Korean shop owner, you just see one side of him. When you look at Radio Raheem, you don't really see many sides of him. Sal is the only character, and, and probably Mookie as well, that you really see multiple sides to. And I just thought that, you know, Danny did a great job in that role.
0: I think the same thing about the mayor, actually. And the mayor is my favorite character in the whole movie. And I think Ozzy's performance as the mayor is like crazy.
1: Well, why don't we talk about those two characters for a minute? So you've got the mayor, played by Ozzy Davis, who is, you know, the neighborhood drunk, basically. He is not well respected in the community. Uh, Some of the older people acknowledge who he is. Mr. Signor Love Daddy calls him out on the show a couple times, but there's this really powerful scene of some of the young people in the neighborhood verbally attacking him for being a bum and a drunk, and yet in some strange way he is kind of the moral center of this neighborhood. He's the one that's trying to hold things together. And then you have the woman that he's pining after, mother's sister, who's played by Ruby D., who's the neighborhood grandma that watches over everything. And Ossie Davis and Ruby D. were married in real life. And I think that that dynamic brings a lot to their characters as well. So, James, tell us a little bit about why you're so drawn to the mayor's performance.
0: I mean, I feel like we'll get into this a little bit later, but I feel like Sal and the mayor counter each other in the movie. Sal is the patriarch, obviously, of Sal's. Like, it's his shop. He has his sons. In his mind, he's like molding Mookie into something, bringing him into the family per se. And he's like the leader of that. He is an entrepreneur. He is someone who has means. He is someone who is connected to the police and the police are okay with Sal. Sal's okay with the police. I feel like the mayor is like the unspoken patriarch of the community and he's a drunk. That's like, saying something about the system of what's happening in the movie. It's the system of injustice that exists in our country and especially in urban neighborhoods. Even though the young people are mad at the mayor, it's almost like they're looking at like what they're destined to become Mm. as people who live in that neighborhood. And they're calling the mayor the plumb, but the mayor is looking back at them and saying, hey, like I was just like you. I have dreams and ambitions. And he gives them the speech back as if to say, like, hey, you haven't lived any life. Like, you have no idea what I've seen. And the mayor is simply someone who's just, like, been through a whole bunch of things. And all of those things have, like, put him in the situation and the position that he's in. And the reality for the mayor is, like, he loves the neighborhood just as much as anybody else. But, like, the older, wise character is, like, the neighborhood drunk. He's the Elmer Fudd. And then you have Sal, the older, wiser character on another side, who is like an entrepreneur and a business owner.
1: Well, and the thing I love about the way that they almost play the mayor and mother's sister off of each other as well, because, you know, through the whole movie, you have this really playful interaction between the two of them where mother's sister's telling him, get off my stoop.
2: You are ugly enough. Don't stare at me. The evil
0: eye doesn't work on me. Mother sister, you've been talking about me for 18 years. What have I done to you? You're a drunk fool. Besides that, the mayor don't bother nobody. And nobody don't bother the mayor, but you. The mayor just tend to his own business. I love everybody. I even love you. Hold your tongue. You don't have that much love. One day, you're going to be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're going to be nice. At least civil.
1: But you can see she's kind of coming around to his charms, and Mother's sister genuinely comes across as a good person who cares about the community. And for most of the movie, they're trying to fight the perception that the mayor is bad for the community and a drunk. And yet at the end of the movie, when the riot is breaking out and they light Sal's pizzeria on fire, the first person they cut to in the crowd is Mother's sister. And you finally see the rage that's inside of her come spilling out. When you see her screaming, burn it down, burn it down. And the only person at that point that's still trying to break up what's going on is the mayor. And I think, again, just to get back to the thing about Sal... Every character in this movie contributes to what happens at the end of the film, and we're going to get into this in our analysis, but what I really love about the way that Spike Lee subverts your expectations, you know, the mayor's not supposed to be the one that you're sticking up for, or who is the moral center of the community, but he's the only one that really takes a stand at the end of the film and tries to do the right thing.
0: And the mayor is a hero. Earlier in the film, the mayor's going to save a kid from getting hit by a car, and then, like... The mom is going to... Yell crush, at the mayor yeah, for how... the yeah. mayor out, even though he's the one who, like, saves her son. Like, the mayor is constantly... I feel like that in a microcosm is like the mayor's life. He's trying to do the right
2: thing. One of the things that I love about the mayor being kind of the patriarchal figure for the block is that, you know, Bob, you kind of said earlier that Sal has this patriarchal kind of feel about the pizza shop. But the interesting thing to me is that he expresses that he feels like he's a patriarch for the whole block, that these kids grew up on my pizza. I've watched the kids get older and the old people get older and older. And I, I think that Spike Lee is trying to point out how white America thinks of itself as the patriarch for black America, that they know how to raise them, that you know we raise them on our pizza. And And there's this sense, this unsettling sense that Sal thinks he knows the neighborhood. And while I'm sure that he does in certain ways, because he's lived there, he's worked there for so well not lived there, he's worked there for so long. Obviously, he has some understanding of it, but he doesn't understand black culture and the way that he thinks he does. I'm going to push back just
1: a little bit on that, Brad. I don't think that's a bad read of the movie. But what what I would argue is that Spike Lee wrote Sal as a very earnest character I honestly think that we are supposed to think that not only does Sal really take pride in what he did, but that it's okay that he feels that way. You know, like James was talking about, there are these moments where you get the good Sal and the bad Sal, and when Sal really shares his heart with his son, Pino, who's begging him to get out of that neighborhood and go open up a shop somewhere else... I really do feel like Spike Lee is using Sal at that point for the audience to get on his side, because regardless of whatever his personal flaws are, Sal really does care about the people in that neighborhood and isn't trying to exploit them. Uh, But I saw Sal as a more sympathetic character. I guess I took what he was saying at face value.
2: Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you. And I think what I love about that, what you just said, paired with what I said, I think that Spike Lee is giving a generous view of all of America and and you know there's there's a part of me that really wants to hope for the best in people. And obviously that hope is dashed on many, many occasions in our culture. but man, i there's something about me that Sal really does wants what best for Mookie and the guys who come into his shop, and and he doesn't want them to end up poor and drunk and, you know, somewhere in a gutter, But there's still a sense of disconnect between his culture and theirs that good-heartedness just can't overcome.
1: One of the things I love about what you said, Brad, is that Spike Lee gives a really generous view of everybody in this movie. And I think one of the most frustrating things is when you go online and you see people's reactions to the movie back then and today. Because I feel like this is the kind of movie that, because every character is so complex and complicated and flawed, you can project your own feelings about people or about yourself onto this movie really easily. And I think a lot of people have read into this movie things that aren't there. And what I love about what Spike Lee does in this script is he gets everybody... He gives them things in the pros and cons columns. No character is 100% good or 100% bad. He's painting in shades of gray. Except for the police. Yeah, except for the police. But, you know, even they, at the beginning of the movie, the first time you see them is when all the kids are playing in the fire hydrant and having fun. And the police come, and they don't make any arrests. They're really just screwing with the guy that got his car messed with as well. And you see him later in the movie kind of palling around with Sal a little bit. Even though the police come back into that community and do what they do, and Spike Lee very clearly has an opinion on police brutality, he even gives the police a little bit of an opportunity to have some character development, which he didn't have to do that. And that's the thing is I feel like he's so generous in building these things into the movie that this is a movie that requires you to think with a level of nuance and complexity about what happens on the screen and it doesn't give you easy answers, and I think that's why people have such a struggle watching this movie.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the scenes that exemplifies that perfectly is the scene when Bugging Out first comes in, and he he's upset about the cheese, and then he starts to say, you know, you know, why aren't there any brothers up on this wall? Like, and and Spike Lee does that scene in such a way that like. You understand Sal's viewpoint. He's like, hey, man, this is my business that I started. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the people that I want on the wall. It's my place. And I feel like any viewer can watch that and kind of be like, I mean, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like, it's his place. But on another level, you look at it and go, well, yeah, Sal, but you're running a pizza shop in the middle of an African-American neighborhood and... And if you really respected the people who come and spend their hard-earned money at your shop, maybe you would include people in your store that they look up in respect to. So like that in that one little scene, Spike Lee is so generous in showing both viewpoints on a fraught situation. This
0: is why this is the crown jewel of Spike's catalog. It's his Starry Night. It's his Game 7 block. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the crown jewel of Spike's catalog because what you get with Spike in this movie, like Bugging Out, is not a character that like Spike Lee just invented in his head. Bugging Out represents like what Black culture was in nineteen eighty nine in that neighborhood. He's representing the Black awakening that was happening within hip hop culture. Like you are gonna have the Zulu Nation with a tribe called Quest and with De La Soul, and you are gonna have all these rappers wearing around like African print. And you're going to have like the transition from like N.W.A., this crazy gangster rap to a more conscious rap. And 1989 is a little early, but I mean, even like Fight the Power, the song with Public Enemy, is just going to be a representation of the move in hip hop. And "Bugging Out is really like representing the move to consciousness. And "Bugging Out is really just saying like he's really being who he is and asking a genuine question as if to say like, Where are the black people at? Right. That's a question that like African-Americans around that time are like asking in general. You're going to see the rise of like the nation of Islam, like just this rise of I'm black and I'm proud. I'm black and that's awesome. No matter what anyone else says and bugging out is like asking a question for himself. But it's Spike asking the question that black culture is really asking in the nation at that point.
1: But even then, Spike does this brilliant thing with the character of Bugging Out, and we've already touched on it a little bit, that Bugging Out is a character that is, in many ways, Spike's critique of what he sees in that mindset as well. Yeah. I mean, at one point, Muki's having a conversation with Pino about Minister Farrakhan, and they're talking fairly respectfully about what Minister Farrakhan argues, but then the embodiment of those arguments are in Bugging Out, and Spike really does paint Bugging Out as kind of this larger-than-life caricature that no one respects or listens to until he incites violence.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's, again, it's Spike's crown jewel because he, like, knocks on the door of just one of the great truths that even today, even today in our woke, conscious world, people just don't understand. Like, blackness is not monolithic. Bugging Out believes what he believes. Mookie is like, hey, this is my job. That's what's important to Mookie. Bugging Out's out trying to get people to sign this petition. And they're like, what are you talking about? The idea of like a group think just isn't reality. It's a true blackness.
1: Well, I think this is a good place for us to take a break. We have two whiskeys to get into today. So what do you guys say we sample some whiskey? When we come back, we'll have two reviews of Cooper's Craft Whiskey, followed by our analysis of the film. Stay tuned. So today we are going to be looking at Cooper's craft. Now we actually are doing something for the very first time on the film and whiskey regular podcast episode. We're going to be reviewing two whiskeys at once. We're looking at Cooper's craft and Cooper's craft 100 proof. These are both whiskeys that are made by Brown Foreman, which is one of the largest distributors of whiskey in the country. This was first released in 2016. It was their first new whiskey in 20 years since Woodford reserve. Cooper's craft is basically being marketed as a nod to the fact that Brown Foreman owns their own Cooperage, which is a barrel maker. And so as an ode to what they consider to be preserving the art of a Cooperage, they've made this whiskey, which they say is a four to six year whiskey that they blend in small ish batches and then release that at either 82 or 100 proof. So Brad, why don't we get started with the Cooper's Craft, just the regular, the standard version. What are you picking up on the nose of this Cooper's Craft?
2: Man, this really feels like a traditional bourbon. You're kind of getting those vanilla and caramel notes. I think I'm getting a little bit of spice on the back end. The, and there is a brightness to it as well. I, I think it it smells like a smooth type of whiskey. Yeah, the first word I wrote down was bright. I get a lot of...
1: um. Like fruit notes on this, a lot of peach, maybe some green apple, which is something we haven't smelled on a whiskey in a while, but it definitely smells fruity. I'm not getting quite as many of those classic bourbon notes you talk about, like the deep sugary notes. And I'm actually a little bit worried about what this might taste like because it has a little bit of that sort of chemically ethanol scent to it that we get sometimes on more inexpensive whiskeys. So I'm really hoping that doesn't translate too poorly to the taste i'm just gonna give this one a six on the nose
2: yeah i'm gonna give it a six and a half it's not overwhelming in any way
1: so not off to a great start on this but brad let's give it a taste
2: it's not very viscous
1: (laughs) no it's not and i know that we say that jokingly but this is really thin and almost watery tasting to me not even like watery tasting just Just not viscous. It's really thin.
2: Yeah, there's not much going on in the flavor. I do pick up on that green apple you were talking about, Bob. It does have a fruity flavor to it, but there's not a ton of anything going on. There's not a lot of depth to it.
1: No. And the only note that I picked up on the whole way through was that green apple. There's no sweetness on the front. I didn't really notice any flavor until basically I went to swallow. And on the back of my tongue, you get a lot of that spice and a lot of that burn. But this is a pretty one-note whiskey, and I think I'm only going to give it about a five
2: on taste. Yeah, I'll give it a four and a half. Uh, The taste doesn't really do much for me. I I will say it is smooth. I I do enjoy that about this whiskey. It's not a harsh whiskey. It's an easy sipper. It is, and yet
1: I think that the finish is pretty bitter, too. There's a little bit of smoke on the finish, which I like. It's not super long lasting, but it gets really, really dry and really oaky and kind of bitter. So I'm not really a fan of the finish as well. And I don't know if I would really call this a smooth whiskey because the more you drink of it, the more you get that flavor of the finish and it makes it harder for me to actually get through this glass of whiskey.
2: Yeah, honestly, on the finish, I'm going to give this, I don't know, a, a, about a five maybe. It's not terrible. It's it's drinkable and it, it's smooth as it goes down. I, I'm not getting a ton of burn or anything. You know, it is 82 proof, but it's just okay. It's just average.
1: Yeah, I'm also going to give it a five on the finish. So let's talk about balance here. I mean, I gave it a six, a five, and a five. This is a pretty middle-of-the-road whiskey. We'll get into price in a minute here, but I'm glad this is relatively inexpensive because I just don't see a lot going on here. So I guess I'll give it a six and a half on balance. I'm just not super impressed with this.
2: Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven on balance. I I will say it doesn't promise things and then not deliver on them. You know, what I smelled... I, I kind of got all the way through. So I'm, I'm okay with giving this a 7 on balance. All
1: right, and that takes us to value. Now in the state of Ohio, a fifth of Cooper's Craft Standard will cost you 22.99. That's pretty much in line with what I thought it would be. If I'm being 100% honest, I would not pay 22.99 for this. I actually finished off the bottle from episode one of this podcast the other night, which was Benchmark, which has been sitting on my shelf for about nine months. And it's actually developed into a pretty nice little whiskey for like 10 bucks or 11 bucks or whatever it cost. I think I would probably put this on the level of a Benchmark. It's right in the middle of the pack. I don't know that I would want to pay more than $15 for this. If I'm being honest, I'll give it a five.
2: I'm going to go ahead and give this a 6.5. I think that there's some value to be had here. I think I enjoyed this whiskey a little bit more than you, Bob. There there's it I would agree it's a single note whiskey, but I kind of enjoyed it. It was smooth, the spices didn't overpower me. I, I was okay with this, but you're right, it's not a super high quality. And twenty two ninety nine is probably a little bit overpriced. I would probably pay like sixteen to nineteen dollars for this.
1: All right, so that puts my final score out to a twenty seven and a half. Brad, what's that bring you to? You know, you might think that when we talk about a whiskey being good for mixing, that that's like the worst insult we can give. But I don't think that at all. I've had a couple whiskeys in the course of this podcast that I actually think are bad to drink neats and would be bad as a mixer. There are certain whiskeys that just do not work at all. And honestly, I do think I would use this in cocktails. I think I'd use it as a mixer. And that's not to say anything overwhelmingly negative
2: about it. I think it would mix really well. Oh, 100%. And, you know, if we're moving into, would you recommend? I would say, yeah, use it as a mixer. Honestly, this might sound bad, but the packaging that it comes in, you know, it's a nice label. It's a nice looking bottle. If I pulled this bottle out with some friends who might not know whiskey really well, it would seem somewhat impressive, like it's a nice-looking bottle that is nice to use for a mixer, and it's going to have a pleasant taste. So, yeah, go ahead. Use it as a mixer. It's it's definitely worth the buy, then.
1: So that takes us out to an average of a 28.5 out of 50 on that one, just slightly above average. Brad, what do you say we move into this 100 proof? Because I can already tell that this has a lot more going on than the standard. There's more fruit on the nose for me. I'm getting like some pear. It's not so much green apple this time. This is a little more subtle and and complex with the fruit notes. And it also has those classic bourbon notes. I get a lot of maple syrup and some brown sugar, lots of oak on this. I really like the nose on this one. I'll give it a seven.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. And even just looking at it, the color on this one is so much deeper brown you know, kind of a molasses looking color as opposed to the first one, where it was just a little bit lighter yellow in color. I, I'm really liking this one. All the notes that you brought up, I'm really loving the oaky smell in this bourbon, and I'd probably give it a seven and a half on the nose. All right, let's give it a taste. Oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, I really
1: like this. I uh I just happened to kind of, I don't know, I just breathed in a little bit as I was sipping it, in a way that like, I don't know how else to describe it. I almost got these like eggnoggy notes on this one. Like a what's that Mexican dessert? Tres leches? Like a flan type flavor. Like it, man, it's really caramely, but also some really creamy notes and some baking spices. Really reminded me of a good glass of eggnog. And it had a lot of spice to it. It was hot, but it wasn't harsh at all. I really love this. I'm going to give this an eight and a half.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a custardy type feel.
1: Yeah, that's it. Perfect custard.
2: Yeah, I'm really enjoying this. There's a lot of depth and interest in this. It does kind of have that creaminess that you're talking about, Bob. But I'm still tasting that kind of oakiness to it that I'm really loving. And I think I'm going to go ahead and stick with you, Bob. Eight and a half. This is an impressive whiskey. I will say that
1: the finish didn't quite do it for me. Brad, what you were saying about the sort of oaky taste... I think that really comes out in the finish. It's pretty dry. I think that's the word for it. It's kind of bitter. You really do get a lot of those woody notes from the barrel. I did not like the finish that much on this. I'm going to give it a five and
2: a half. Honestly, Bob, I'm going to have to disagree with you on the finish. I think that this is an extremely smooth finish. I think that the oakiness does come out like you say, but... Man, it's a beautiful thing. I'm going to go ahead and give this a 9 on the finish. I think that this ends so well on my palate, I I can't give it anything lower. All right, so overall balance, we're talking nose,
1: taste, and finish.
2: Brad, how would you score that out? This is an extremely well-balanced whiskey. The nose starts out beautifully, and I think it gets better and better from there. So I'm going to go ahead and give this an 8 on the balance.
1: I really did think that the finish kind of threw things off for me quite a bit. I did not like the finish on this, but the nose and the taste were so good and so consistent that I can't take it down too far. I think I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on balance. And then in terms of value, Cooper's Craft 100 will cost you $29.99, so we're talking about a $30 bottle of whiskey. Right in that, that tier of whiskeys where you're starting to get into some really good, hidden gems, but then also you're still in the same rung as like a Jack Daniels. So it can get kind of dicey in this price range because $30 I think is a little overpriced for what this whiskey is. I really do like the flavor of it. I just don't know if I could go all in on a recommendation at 30 bucks. I think I'm going to give it a six and a half on value.
2: Oh man, Bob, I think you're crazy. I think that this is an extremely good value for what you're getting. I mean, this is an impressive whiskey with lots of complexity that you don't normally see at the $30 range. I am going to go ahead and give it a nine on value. I, I would definitely buy this without a doubt if I saw it on the shelf.
1: Yeah, I really like this whiskey. I think 30 is just kind of that price point where you and I talk about needing to make the transition into a little bit higher quality than this has to offer. If this was 25, even, I think my score would be quite a bit higher, but at 30, it's kind of like right on that line for me where I'm not entirely sure. So for now, I'm going to stick at a six and a half. I might come around to it a little bit more in the future. And I think this is a good time to disclose that both of these bottles were actually sent to us by a representative of Cooper's craft for review. So first of all, we want to say thank you to Cooper's craft for these bottles I think Brad and I would, would both recommend the 100 proof. This is a really, really good bottle of whiskey. It's a beautiful thing. So, Brad, what's that bringing your final score out to?
2: My final score
1: is a 42. I am very impressed with this. Wow, I'm at a thirty four and a half. So we're quite a ways away from each other. But I think we both like and we both would recommend this. And that brings our average out to a 38.25. So we're approaching that almost 80th percentile here. This is a really good whiskey, and I'm really glad we got to try it because I have not known a lot of people that have tried it before, and so to get the opportunity to try it from the distributor,
2: I couldn't be happier. Yeah, thank you so much to Cooper's Craft. What a blessing it is to have this whiskey and to share it with Film and Whiskey Nation. I Yeah, I highly recommend it. Go out, try that 100 proof. It will surprise you. All right, Brad. I think it's
1: time for us to get back into talking about Do the Right Thing. That transition music was brought to you by Homage Beats and his album 90s Kids. You can follow him on Instagram or on SoundCloud, Homage Beats. And it's time for us to get back into talking about Do the Right Thing. There's so many directions we could go and we haven't even really talked about the direction or the cinematography in this movie, which is super famous, the way this movie's photographed, but I want to get us into our analysis on this movie because we've been hinting at it for a long time. Spike Lee really is trying to make such a profound point in this movie, and I think it's time we talked about it. So for me, the key to understanding this movie comes in two scenes. The first scene is that really famous monologue from Radio Rahim, where he explains the meaning of the love and hate rings that he's wearing.
0: Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hate. It was with this hand McCain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And your left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses, the right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now, that's right. Yeah, ooh, it's a devastating right, and hate is hurt. Down, ooh, ooh, left hand hate, KO'd by love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you... (laughs) There it is, love and hate.
1: That scene's kind of lifted. It was an homage to a film from the 1950s called Night of the Hunter. But in that scene, Radio Rahim is talking about how the left hand and the right hand are constantly at war with each other, love and hate, and how at times it seems like hate is going to KO love. And what happens in that scene is they really establish this sort of opposition or this war that's going on within the movie, and you see it really well exemplified. In a different scene in the movie that comes back into play later with the character of Smiley, who's developmentally disabled. He lives in the neighborhood and he walks around selling pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And in these pictures, both men are standing next to each other, shaking hands. And yet you understand by the end of the film that they have two radically opposed philosophies on the nature of violence as achieving an end. And I think those two scenes put together really help to underline what Spike Lee's trying to do, which is that every character in this movie has love and has hate within them. Every character in this movie expresses both love and hate. And by the time we get to the ending of the film, where the violence becomes an outburst, Spike Lee is making, he's asking the question, who's doing the right thing in this scenario? Is there a right thing that can be done? And is the violence as a response to what's happening justified or not? And it really leaves you with a lot of questions as a viewer. So, James, Brad, I really want to hear your your points on what you see as Spike Lee's central point. And then also, did anybody in this movie do the right thing?
0: I would say I think Spike Lee's central point in this movie is exposing that the reality for all of us is very complex and that everyone does what they perceive to be the right thing. Like Sal is doing what he perceives to be the right thing as a business owner. He's trying to run a good, clean business. He's trying to keep business moving. He's trying to keep it profitable. Having a loud radio blaring rap music is keeping people from being able to talk and enjoy their food experience. Bugging out believes that the right thing is for there to be equity in the people who are posted on the walls and the races. Sal believes that, hey, the right thing for me is to have only Italian-Americans on the wall. Mookie believes that the right thing to do in the sense of the tension after Radio Rahim has died and been killed brutally by the police is to throw that trash can through the window. Everyone's doing what they perceive to be the right thing. But I think Spike's central point is that in a system of white supremacy where whiteness is on top and blackness is on bottom, at the end of the day, when everyone does what they perceive to be the right thing. At the end of the day, Sal's going to get insurance money. Sal's pride is hurt, but Sal's pocket will not be hurt at the end of the day. Mm. At the end of the day, Radio Rahim is dead. Right. He's not able to come back. At the end of the day, the police officers are going to get away. Like they're going to get off. At the end of the day, like the community, the black community there in Besti is hurt again. Yeah, and will be hurt again and again and again. It's crazy that like literally the same thing happens with Eric Gardner years later, twenty-five mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. The exact same thing as Radio Raheem is gonna happen to Eric Gardner in New York. So I think like Spike's central point is everyone's trying to do the right thing. They perceive to be the right thing. But at the end of the day, like there is a winner and there's a loser. And that the loser, like, is those who are black. Mm. The winner is The police and so.
1: And when you get to the end of the movie, the decisions the characters make—it's hard to argue that anyone actually does what is the right thing. You know, you're right in that they all do what they perceive to be the right thing, but it's hard to argue that anyone's actually doing the right thing. And I think Spike Lee gives us these sort of breadcrumbs throughout the movie that sort of lead us to that conclusion. You know, there's a scene where a young girl, Ella—I think her name is Ella—she's walking around with Ahmad and her friends. And when they're like berating the mayor for being a bum and they all walk away and you see her kind of linger and it's like she wants to apologize and she doesn't know which way to go because she can't decide whether or not to do the right thing. The scene where Sal is sitting down with Pino and talking about why do you have so much hate and anger in you? and The two of them are interrupted by Smiley, who comes to the window trying to sell something and Pino flies off in a fit of rage, goes outside and confronts Smiley. And the camera stays on Sal. And you just see Sal, like, bury his head in his hands because he realizes that, A, his son is a lost cause and he can't turn him back to, you know, the light side. But on top of that, I think what that scene is really highlighting is that Sal doesn't spring into action to fix things when he still has a chance. Because it's not until Smiley, the most innocent character in this movie, starts shouting, F-U, F-U at Pino, that Sal finally goes outside and confronts it. And I think they're really, it's an instance of foreshadowing in this movie that every character in this movie has the opportunity to do the right thing and chooses not to. And when that actually comes to a head at the end of the film, the fact that no one is doing the right thing is what contributes to what you see.
2: Yeah, honestly, we keep talking about, you know, this idea of characters doing the right thing. And I think one of the most important philosophical parts of that is that if you have the opportunity to do the right thing that also necessarily means that you have an opportunity to do the wrong thing and over and over in this movie we see people who who think that they're doing the right thing end up doing what is a wrong thing you know and and there's this idea that that the wrong thing is always crouching at our doorstep and it's ready to take us and it's ready to force us into an action that we can regret for the rest of our lives. You know, you don't think that Sal will regret for the rest of his life beating his bat into, you know, Radio Raheem's radio. There's so many things in this movie that people probably regret, but in the end they did it. And and it's a scary reality that, you know, we talked about how love and hate both reside in each human being. It's interesting that Raheem says, you know, but in the end, love will win out over hate because this movie does not reinforce that message. You know, in the end, we see that hate wins out, that police brutality wins out. And it, it really is a bleak picture because it's not Martin Luther King's quote about peace. That is the final quote in the movie. You know, the final quote that we see in the movie is Malcolm X. He is the one who gets the final word saying that violence is sometimes an appropriate answer in the face of such horror. And I think that that's a really interesting thing that Spike Lee does.
1: Well, and I think that that's actually where I want to go with this conversation, because a lot of the dialogue around the end of this film is, does Mookie do the right thing? Because what happens is Spike Lee puts the inciting incident in the hands of his main character in response to what he has just seen. In response to seeing police brutality, Mookie picks up a trash can, he runs towards Sal's, he screams hate, and he throws it through the window. A lot of people have argued that they think that what's happening in that scene is that Mookie is seeing that the mob is turning their attention on Sal and his family and that Mookie is trying to divert their attention away from harming Sal and his family to just harming the property and therefore that Mookie does the right thing. But Spike Lee himself has come out and said, that was never my intention. People can interpret it that way if they want to, but at the end of the day, Spike Lee has said the only people that ever ask him why Mookie threw the trash can through the window are white people. He says, I've never once had a black person ask me that question. And I think it raises the question of how we perceive these violent acts, how we perceive a response to violence, how we perceive what we would consider to be a quote-unquote riot, because I think what Spike Lee is asking is... Does Mookie actually do the right thing? Because at the end of the movie, Sal is saying to Mookie, why don't you care more about what happened to my business? And Mookie looks right at him and says, man, like, F your building. Someone is dead. And the fact that we're even having this conversation about a piece of property and whether it's more valuable and has more moral integrity than a human life means that you don't have your priorities in order in the first place. And so I do kind of wonder... Does Mookie actually do the right thing? Is his anger misplaced, or is his anger completely justified? I guess what I'm asking is, what would your reaction to that be? Put yourself in Mookie's shoes. Do you think he's doing the right thing? Can you justify his
0: actions? Martin Luther King has a famous quote, and this is like not Malcolm X, this is Martin Luther King. He's asked to comment on a riot in the 60s, and he says, he ends the quote with, this riot is the language of the oppressed or the language of the unheard. And he ends his whole statement with tonight we write. Hmm. And I believe like for me, when I watch that Sal, when he crushed radio Raheem's radio, like he's called radio Raheem in the movie. That for me is the beginning of the death of radio Raheem. And for me, like the justification to the beginning of the ends of Sal's is like those trash cans going through that window. And for me, I feel like Mookie as a character and that the people of Bed-Stuy are completely justified in burning cells down. Because the reality is, like, they're going to get no justice from the system. (laughs) When has justice ever been seen for people of color in the system, specifically black people in this nation? And as we look at police brutality today, we see over and over and over and over and over again, like, the police getting off scotch-free.
1: I think one of the most powerful shots in the movie, it's not one that you would normally think of. It's after they put Radio Rahim's dead body into the back of the police cruiser. And there's a shot from from like where Sal's is located, looking down the street. And you just watch the back of the police cars fade out into the night as they drive away. Because what Spike Lee is telling us is that the police can come here. They can do what they did. And at the end of the day, they get to go home to their wives and their children, and they get to leave the situation they created. I was actually reading Spike Lee's draft of the screenplay, and he basically says in there the police have abandoned Sal and their family in the middle of what he calls a mob of angry black folks. The police abandon everybody in that situation, and what Spike Lee's trying to highlight there is that this is not just a place where you come in and get to go home from every day. People actually live here. And people here in this neighborhood are going to deal with the fallout of what just happened, what they created. You know, whether or not the police think they can come in and leave at their own leisure and Sal and his sons can come in and leave every day. There's people who live in this situation that have to deal with the ramifications of what's happening.
2: I think that one of my biggest struggles with this movie is that it just portrays reality. And, and there's the optimist in me that wants to see that this is changing. And there's the optimist in me that wants... To say that, you know, humanity's moving forward. But I think that one of the realities of a postmodern world is that people have recognized that this modern idea that humanity is ascending and ascending just doesn't work. It's not reality. When you look back at the 20th century, you see so many crimes of hate against Jewish people, against Asian people, against black people. Like, y- you just see this downward spiral and you know with technology you see an increased ability to kill others you see an increased ability to impose harm on fellow human beings that don't share the same skin color as you this movie made me sob I, you know i was watching radio raheem just be murdered and i was watching sal lose his life's work and i was watching mookie lose his source of income the thing he cared about and you see all these people who have different goals and different you know, ideologies, you know, like you said, James, like being black isn't a monolith. Each human is an individual human being. And there's just so much brokenness in this world. This movie is just such a stark reminder of that, that it's just a hard movie to watch. You know, we come to the end and, and, you know, Bob, you asked the question, did Mookie do the right thing in the end? And James, I think that your answer is correct. Like, For people of color, like what other language do they have to express but anger and frustration and outrage, you know, but but on another level, you know, do we repay hate with hate? I just go, man, I just want people to act with love. And unfortunately, it's just not the case. And this movie is such a hard, hard reminder that people really suck at loving each other.
0: I think that's like a beautiful utopic perspective. And I think, like, the reason why I say though I think, like, Mookie does the right thing is because, like, in these situations, it's expected from majority culture for people who are, like, so deeply hurt to immediately, like, rise above that mm-hmm. and not, like, act out of that hurt, like, immediately. The hurt that's experienced there in that scene, it's a scab that's being torn off continually. You have, like, these interlocking systems of injustice And this racism, like, this evil racism that just takes different phases, like, throughout American history. And this is just another face of it. And what just makes it, like, so hard for me is I watched it as a kid. And I watched it, like, as a teenager a whole lot when I was formulating, like, hey, I actually really like to watch movies. And now, like, I watch it as an adult and I walk out of it. And I just walk out of it with a heavy heart because, like, it's 30 years ago, man. Like, the movie came out, like, the year I was born. And for me to, like, think that in my lifetime, like, Spike Lee is almost, like, prophetically saying, like, these are issues in our nation. Literally, Eric Garner is choked out by the police for selling cigarettes. Unarmed Eric Garner. And for me, it's like, man, and what do we do? Yeah, we're asked to immediately, like, rise above. Mm -hmm. And we're looked at as, like, animals when we're rioting rather than, like, a people group that's hurt deeply.
1: James you're you're absolutely right this movie is so far ahead of its time and it's one of the few movies that I think it's really sad to say that about you know normally you talk about a movie being ahead of its time it's something you praise it for this movie is ahead of its time because 30 years later, we're still talking about gentrification. And that scene in that movie with bugging Out and the guy in the Larry Bird shirt is played for laughs. A lot of what Spike does in this movie is he tries to get you to laugh at these issues until they add up to something tragic. We're still talking about gentrification and police brutality, and it's like not much has changed. Brad, last season, you and I watched the movie Green Book for this podcast. Green Book was almost immediately lambasted by critics because they saw in it a sort of toothless depiction of racism. This movie comes out, Do the Right Thing comes out the same year as Driving Miss Daisy, which is a movie that Green Book was compared to a lot. And Do the Right Thing is such an explosive movie. It splits critics. Honestly, if you if you ever have time to go back and read some of these reviews that critics gave Do the Right Thing... They're just racist in the way that they talk about what they think this movie is going to do to American society. And I think the Academy is really scared of this movie. It only gets nominated for two Oscars, Danny Aiello for Best Supporting Actor and Best Screenplay for Spike Lee. It loses both. Driving Miss Daisy wins Best Picture. And I'm not going to say that Green Book is the same thing as Driving Miss Daisy because I did enjoy the movie Green Book. But I do think that we need more movies like Do the Right Thing To remind us not of what we aspire to be all the time, but to give us a hard look in the mirror at what we actually are. And I think that's what this movie does so well. So, Brad, you know, we have to wrap up. We have to wind down. If you had to give this movie a score out of 10, what would you give it and would you recommend?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to start with recommend. I obviously recommend this movie. I think you said it best, Bob. It's a hard look in the mirror. Um, I think whether you are black or white this movie is a hard look in the mirror and I think that the beauty of this movie is that Spike Lee pretty fairly deals out with like what people are doing in their lives you know he gives a generous look to both and he gives a hard look at both and I think that that's what's so beautiful about this movie. I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of 10. I, I think it's close to being a perfect movie. You know, we didn't really talk about cinematography and some other things. There's certain things about this movie that I just didn't care for. But the things that I didn't care for were mostly of an ancillary nature to the core premise of this movie. So, you know, does it keep me from giving it a 10 out of 10? Yeah, but my man, this is such, such a stellar movie when you look at the core message that is being shown.
1: Yeah, Brad, I completely agree. I think this is one of the most important American movies of the last 50 years, and in some ways, unfortunately so. I wish this movie was describing a world that didn't exist anymore, but it's necessary viewing. And you know, I'll just tell a quick little story. When James and I were in college, we were both in student government, and we had a retreat planned for the student government, and we decided to show for Multicultural Training Day – We were going to show the movie Crash, which is a movie about racism and it has powerful moments in it. And at the last minute, James and I decided to switch the program and show this room full of white college students do the right thing for the first time and just talk it through afterwards. And I have never seen a group of people look so petrified in their entire life because they have no idea what hit them. But to this day, I don't regret doing that. I think this is a movie that honestly should be required viewing. We need to grapple with the things this movie is asking of us and really take that hard look in the mirror and implicate ourselves in what we're doing that keeps this cycle of violence and hatred and racism perpetuating. I'm going to give this movie a 10 out of 10. It might not be 100% perfect, but it is close to perfect and it is just a necessary film. James, I'm assuming you're going to give this movie a 10 out of 10 as well.
0: Yeah. This gets a 10 from me. Spike Lee's my favorite writer and director. I love most of his movies. Uh, but this, again, this is his Game 7 block, man. This is, this is the crown jewel. And in my eyes, like Rosie Perez, what she does at the beginning of the movie with that dance is the most hip-hop thing ever. Contextually, it's beautiful. I think it's just shot wonderfully and really just represents the beauty that exists in the Best Side neighborhood there in Brooklyn. I'm, just a, I'm a huge fan of it. It gets a 10 from me. And my eyes. like, there's Casablanca, there's The Godfather, and just Do the Right Thing.
1: Well, there you have it. That's the opinions of the host of the Film and Whiskey podcast. But we want to know what you think. Get on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram,
2: or on Facebook at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Give us a call on our call line. We will play you on the air. Our phone number is 216- Once again, that number is 216 5923 Once again, we want to thank Cooper's Craft for sending us our flight today, and we want to
1: thank our guest host, James Talbert. James, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Next week we'll be back talking about the 2014 film Birdman. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.